Once, as an experiment, the great scientist Isaac Newton, the great physicist of the 17th century, he stared at the image of the sun reflected in a mirror. The brightness of the sun was, of course, so great that it burned into the very retina of his eye, and he suffered temporary blindness. And even after three days, and he had hid for three days because of such blindness, he, as it were, he went to look out to see if he could see as well as he could before, and the spot, the bright spot, had not faded from his vision. He said in his own diary, I used all means to divert my imagination from the sun, but if I thought upon him, I presently saw his picture, though I was in the dark. No doubt if he had stared a few minutes longer, Newton would have permanently lost his vision. The receptors and the eyes that govern eyesight, they cannot withstand the full force of the unfiltered sunlight. It's too strong. And the reality is, you know, that if we were to look upon the Lord and his holiness, we could not withstand it. We would be utterly consumed. Moses, when he looked at the Lord, it was only the back parts of God, and God hid his face from Moses. And Moses' face shone so much was the holiness of God. Isaac Newton, he almost went blind looking into the sun. We would be consumed if we were to see the Lord and his holiness in our present estate. However, that fact does not mean that as Christians we're not meant to be holy. We will never attain the holiness of God or the perfection that we will gain through glorification in heaven, but we are called to live holy lives. We will never, as it were, attain what we want to be in this life, but we are to strive toward it. It's a mark of who we are in Christ. We are those new creatures by the new birth. Old things are passed away. All things become new. We know that verse well. And in this particular passage of 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is, of course, speaking to the church at Corinth. It was a grave occasion at the beginning of this epistle. There was a sin found in the church. If you look at uh, chapter, or verse 12 there of chapter 7, Paul alludes to that. He says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Speaking about one who sinned and one who was sinned against. And you can read about that in chapter 2 of this particular book. But this sin was found in the church. And so Paul, he begins to teach the Corinthian believers about separation from sin about separation from idolatry and immorality and having, as it were, holiness in our lifestyle and conversation. You can read that in the previous chapter, and we'll be looking about that in a little moment's time. And therefore, this morning, as I study our text, and as we think about, we cannot attain that perfect holiness, but it is to be the striving of our soul. It is to be our life's work. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, and he's saying the same, that they are to strive for holiness. And so his message for the Corinthians, it's a message for every Christian young and old in this church today. And so I want us to look at together very simply, holiness in the Christian life, holiness in the Christian life. And the first thing I want us to note from what Paul says is the encouragement. He gives an encouragement to the Corinthian believers. Look what it says at the beginning of verse one there. It says, having therefore these promises. Now the word having in the original Greek language it can also mean to have in the hand, to have in store, to store something away for a later date, to regard, to regard something as good and, and right and just as it were that you have, something that you, you look forward to, that you enjoy, and also to hold fast, something that you cherish. 
And the point or the thrust of this word that Paul uses here is that these promises that he speaks of, that the Corinthian believers they have, they are very important. They are very good, they are precious, and they are to be kept in store and held onto tightly. The promises that he refers to are from the previous chapter. And most commentators, if not all, would argue that the first verse of chapter 7 really belongs with chapter 6. And of course, as we know, the chapter and verse distinctions in our Bibles, they're not inspired. They were added in at a later date by a particular person. But such is the link between this verse and the previous chapter. Many believe that they should be together. And the question is, these promises that they hold tightly to, that they should keep in store, these promises that are precious, well, what exactly are they? What's Paul saying? Well, the first promise is the promise of God's presence. You go over there to the previous chapter, chapter 6 and the verse 16, uh, 2 Corinthians 6 and the verse 16, just a few verses before, and it says there, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's a promise of God's presence. That particular verse is saying, speaking about the Lord dwelling in his temple. The temple, of course, is not the physical temple, but it is in the living temple of the hearts of believers. That's the promise that Paul is alluding to here. Yes, it is a promise that was given to the physical temple, but of course, in the New Testament, it's speaking about the spiritual. God says he will walk and dwell therein. It's that promise of God's presence and indwelling in the believer. You think of the Old Testament temple of Solomon, as it were, there over in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And if you can turn with me there, please, 2 Chronicles and the chapter 7. And we want to see a few things about the temple. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is the temple of Solomon, of course, that he had built by the help of God. And this verse from our chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians ties in here. 2 Chronicles 7 and the verses 1 and 2. 2 Chronicles 7 verses 1 and 2, it says there, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When the temple was finished, God's glory filled it. A physical presence so great that even the very priests who were to work in that temple, they could not enter into it. Believer, we have this sweet promise of God's presence within our souls. That's what Paul is drawing us to in 2 Corinthians 6 and in the opening verse of chapter 7. This wonderful promise of God's presence within our souls and the more we're drawn to him, the more the world will be pushed out and the more we know about the Lord. God dwelling and walking really pictures the idea of him not being grieved by what he finds. We think of how a believer can grieve the Holy Spirit through sin, through backsliding, and how this causes the believer to lose that assurance and that peace. No, we don't lose our salvation, but we do lose our peace and our joy. But holiness in the Christian life, it brings a sense of God's presence for he will dwell with us and we will know more and more of him. 
And that's the first encouragement, the first promise that Paul gives to the Corinthians to encourage them. But not only the promise of God's presence, there's the promise of God's pleasure. Now, if you go there again to 2 Corinthians 6, and the verse 17 now, and it says there, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And really, as it were, that verse could be summed up. If you'll be separate, and you'll come out from among them which is unclean, I'll receive you, I'll care for you, and take pleasure in you. What was the Lord asking them to come out from here? Well, this verse, verse 17 of chapter 6, it's a quotation from Isaiah 52, verse 11. And in that verse, under inspiration of God, Isaiah, he's calling the Jews to come away from a mix of heathen idolatry with the worship of the Lord. This God had no pleasure in, and it is not the worship due to his name. To mix the ideology of the world and the emotions and the expectations of the world with the worship of the Lord is an abomination. And God takes no pleasure in it. But God does take pleasure in his people worshiping him in the correct manner and living for him. God will take no pleasure in his child living in the world and seeking his pleasures. But the one who leaves off the world and its lusts and seeks the Lord, that one the Lord takes pleasure in. The one who practices separation from idolatry and sins of the day, him or her God will receive through Christ. It's part of the spiritual sacrifices that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. It speaks about service, service to the Lord. Sometimes you might wonder, why does Peter talk about sacrifices given to God? Is this some way to obtain favor with the Lord? Is this some way to find a righteousness with God? No, it's not. Absolutely not. They cannot bring salvation, but they are a sacrifice out of love for God, and they are rendered through Christ. A sacrifice of time and self and substance to the Lord to serve him and live for him. Friend, this morning we must be separate from the unclean, from the liberal thinking, from the modern movements, and live in the way God has appointed in his word. This he will take pleasure in. So not only a promise of his presence, promise of his pleasure. But Paul also reminds the Corinthians, there is a promise of God's protection. Look at verse 18 of chapter 6, and it says there, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Look at the name that's given to God, the Lord Almighty. It's speaking about his power and his glory. It's speaking about who he is. And then he's saying that he will be the father to his people. What a wonderful promise that is of his protection, of his care to his spiritual children. You know, fathers, they nurture for, they care for, and they protect their children. That's part of their role. And we can think of all the references to God's protection for his people in the word of God. We can think in the Psalms that he pitieth his children, or as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. We can think about Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. There are so many references to note, but God protects his children. It's not a protection from sorrow and care, because we will have sorrows, but it's a protection in the midst of the storm that he is the one who is in control. A protection from eternal ruin, a protector from sin when we run to him for grace, a protector 
in all the storms of life. And so to bring these three promises together of presence, of pleasure, and of protection, Paul is really saying, you have these promises. You have them in store. They're in your hand. They're yours to hold on to. They're your possession given to you by your heavenly Father. Let this be an encouragement to you of your standing in the Lord and an encouragement to you to live for him in living a holy life. Paul's building up the people, trying to strengthen their love and dependence on the Lord. He wants them to see their standing in God and his promises to them that they might be encouraged. And Christian, the same applies to us today. These promises are an encouragement to us. The question is, do we partake of them? Or do we go around with all our sorrows as a burden upon our back instead of leaving them with the Lord and taking his promises and holding on to them? Do we hold them tightly in our grasp, these promises? Do we enjoy the sweetness of them? Paul encourages the Corinthians to do so, as so should we. But not as it were the encouragement. There's also the exhortation here that Paul gives. Notice secondly the exhortation. Look again at uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, our text. says there, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, and then this second clause, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. The words, let us cleanse ourselves, they're an exhortation. Paul is saying quite simply, because you have the promises mentioned previously, let us cleanse ourselves. Cleanse yourself. On account of God's goodness to you, Christian, then you should do this. He has encouraged them by showing them their standing in Christ, and now he's saying because of that, and on the basis of that, cleanse yourself. This exhortation, it has two parts. There is the direction here. Paul says, let us cleanse ourselves. He gives them a clear direction of what to do. The word cleansing in the original Greek, it really has the idea of the removal of an intermixing of the, in the sense of sin and holiness. Really what we were saying about separation in the previous point. The cleansing here is not suggesting that the Christian can cleanse away their own sins without the blood of Christ. Rather, this is the idea of putting away a sin of sinful desires and lusts of the flesh. It's a direction to renouncing sin more and more and living on to Jesus Christ. This work, of course, it's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit and the life of the Christian. But the apostle, rather, as it were, than undermining this foundational doctrine and saying you can do it by yourself, no, he's putting the emphasis on the Christian for another reason. And the reason being is this, that he is showing the Christian their responsibility. Because you have these precious promises, Christian, I exhort you to carry out your responsibility. Let us cleanse ourselves. Albert Barnes, the commentator, the American commentator, he had this to say when speaking about this particular clause in the verse. He says, the argument here is that we have the promises of God to aid us. We do not go about the work in our own strength, it is not a work in which we are to have no aid, but it is a work which God desires and where he will give us all the aid which we need. It's a work that God desires. Albert Barnes puts it right. And the promises are our aid to carry it out. Paul is saying, he's giving direction in this exhortation. He's saying that if you want to live a life of holiness, Christian, you want to be sold out for Christ and cleanse yourself. There's too much mixing of the world and the church today. There's 
too much wanting to serve God and mammon, and yet Christ tells us we cannot. How do Christians, those in mainstream churches today who take the name of Christ, believe that they can live a holy life when they won't fight against sin? Paul directs them in his exhortation here, directs us not to our neighbor, not to our church, not to the leaders of our nation, not to our preachers, not in the sense that the preachers do not have to follow this. Of course they do, but Paul is not directing us to our surroundings, but to ourselves, the churches we are part of. They're filled with holy people, yes. The preachers we sit under may be modern-day Puritans, although you're not sitting under one this morning, I can assure you that. But there are many preachers and they have great theological standing. And the country itself may be an upright and moral one. And yet if there's no personal holiness, then those outside influences don't make up the shortfall. So many of the church of Jesus Christ today were so caught up with public separation. And yes, the church is to be separate, is called to be separate, but Paul is stressing here personal separation. And that's the direction that he gives in his exhortation. Focus on yourself, friend. Let us cleanse ourselves. And he uses the word ourselves. He's not saying to them and then not to himself. He's saying as, as a body of believers, let us cleanse ourselves. That's the direction he gives in his exhortation. But he also then makes a distinction here. And it's very clear to see. He speaks of filthiness from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. His exhortation, he makes this clear distinction between the parts of a man or a believer. I'm going to put it that way. Man has a body and a soul, flesh and spirit. And the word filthiness, it means pollution in the sense of moral pollution, filled with sin, filled with those things which are wrong. Why does Paul bring attention to this and what does it mean? Well, the filthiness of the flesh means that which defiles the body, which is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Such sins that defile the body are those like drunkenness, fornication, sins of the tongue, immorality, and so on and so on. We know the list. And Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be done with these sins. Those sins we would commit through physical action are that which we are to be cleansed from. The filthiness or pollution of the spirit, it refers to pride, envy, malice, lust, and evil thoughts. And the reason for this distinction is to show the Corinthians holiness of life. It involves the whole man or woman. It's not just enough to refrain from outward bodily sins such as drunkenness or fornication. Many a person doesn't commit those sins. We look at them and know they don't, or we don't commit them ourselves, but yet we can be filled with all manner of pollution, spiritually speaking. Many a Christian, sadly, outwardly they may not be involved in those sins, but the heart is not right within. And there'll always be that battle. But the Christian who does not fight sin and does not seek to overcome sin through the power of Christ, they cannot have holiness of life. In God's word, it is so clear. He lays it out. He says, be ye holy, for I am holy. No, we cannot be perfectly holy in ourselves, but we are exhorted here by the apostle to live in such a manner that we cleanse ourselves from the pollution of body and soul. Paul makes a clear distinction, Christian. And though we may, as it were, not fall into the sins of the flesh, do we fall into the sins of the spirit, those sins that no one else can see, those sins within our hearts and minds and our souls? Well, friend, today let us cleanse ourselves from them. Let us live that holy life for the Lord. If you want to live a holy life today, Christian, 
take the promises that God has given, the encouragements that he brings toward us, that has brought to our minds this morning through his word, and then let's heed the exhortation the apostle gives. He says very tenderly to the people, he's not scolding them as it were, he says here, dearly beloved, they're beloved of his. He's telling them for his own good and for his own good. As I said, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. You want to live the holy life? This exhortation must be carried out. But not only the encouragement, not only the exhortation, the last clause of our text, it brings the exercise. The exercise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7 once again. And there is that last phrase there. It says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And this is the exercise of every Christian until their dying day, day after day after day. And how can I say that? Well, the perfecting here does not symbolize perfection. Paul is not saying become perfect in holiness. This is, this is not sinless perfection being taught. No, Paul is not saying that. The word perfection is translated different ways in Scripture. It can mean accomplished, make, performance. And the sense of the word here is really the same as that of Philippians 1 verse 6. If you turn with me over there to Philippians chapter 1, and I'll show you this, what this word can also mean. Philippians 1 and the verse 6 is a well-known verse, but it, it uh, gives the definition of this word in the original Greek as well. Philippians 1 and the verse 6. It says there, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It's that word perform. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 for perfecting. And it is this idea of performing. It means that, as it were, an exercise, an exertion, a practicing and a working. It's the Christian's duty to perform and exercise holiness day after day after day. Same word is used there in Philippians 1. They speak about the Lord and the work that the Lord does in the life and the soul of the Christian day after day after day until they reach eternity. It is a continual, constant work. And so this is for the Christian, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are to perform it day after day. The reason the translators use the word perfecting, it's a good translation. Yes, it carries in this idea of continual performance, but the reason they use perfecting because it goes to the end. Until the end of our natural lives, when something is perfect, it's finished. Usually that's what it means. And if the Lord returns or if we pass away the end of our natural lives, that's the perfecting that we're to follow until it is made perfect in Christ at the end of our life. A continual, constant work and performance. Holy and perfect in this life. Yes, some days we do make more progress than others. Some days we struggle so terribly badly. Some days perhaps we make no progress or strides forward as it were. But with the help of God, we will persevere. We will go forward in the fruit of holiness and we will see the Lord working in our lives. The final words of the verse, in the fear of God. These words, as it were, they're not speaking of that fear of God as, as one who brings punishment or a fear of hell and judgment. It's a reverential fear and awe of the Lord as our heavenly father for who he is and what he has done for us. And Paul, he brings it all together by saying this here. Continue to exercise holiness out of fear and love and reverence and awe 
for your Father in heaven. And so to follow through the teaching of this verse, in order to understand the holiness in the Christian life and the pursuit of it, which is to be the Christian's work, the encouragement, those who are in Christ with that foundation and that standing in Christ, that encouragement that gives strength to accept the exhortation, to cleanse ourselves from spiritual and bodily pollution, casting off sin, denying ourselves, walking in the Spirit. This is to be the continual, lifelong exercise of the believer until they reach heaven where they receive glorification. Christian, as we close our, our message, is this your labor? Are you focused on Christ today and his glory, or does coldness mark your service for him? Perhaps today you're broken and empty and you feel like giving up. You feel like, is it all really worthwhile? The devil has you in such a place that you feel totally trapped. Well, the Lord says about these encouragements, he says, having therefore these promises. And you can go through those last three verses of chapter 6. And look even at the very last verse, it says, I will be a father unto you. Friend, this morning, if you're struggling, the Lord says he'll be a father unto you for you are his child. And you go through with God and you follow that exhortation and you exercise holiness in your life and the Lord will be with you and the Lord will help you. And if you're not saved this morning and you do not have this holiness in your life, if you come to the Lord today, you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ, you ask him to wash you in his blood, he will save you now for all of God's eternity. May God help us to live that holy life for him. May God write his word in our hearts for Jesus' sake.